Josh asked me to, uh, to speak on a subject that some of you might find a little surprising, a little shocking. It's the subject of the hatred of God, the hatred of God. And I'm not talking about people hating God. I'm talking about the things God hates. Now we all know that God is love. In fact, uh, open your Bible to the First John, First John, that wonderful letter written by the Apostle John. And you will go if you have your Bible open to the fourth chapter. And I just want to draw some repeated statements here. Chapter 4, verse 7, love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, God is love. Verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. Verse 11, God so loved. Down in verse 16, the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Verse 19, we love because He first loved us. A lot of love, right? A lot of love from God. John 3, 16, God so what? Loved. This is a theme that is throughout the Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. God's love is evidenced in the world. It's evidenced in the world in a general sense. God loves all people in in some ways, we talk about common grace, a beautiful location, a sunset, a delicious meal, falling in love, having a baby, enjoying life, sitting in a comfortable chair, driving a fast car, being rewarded for hard work, having a good bank account, being able to purchase the things you want. That's called common grace. And it is an expression of God's love that is poured out on people that are on their way to hell and on people who therefore hate Him. God loves the world. God loves even people who hate Him. And He demonstrates that by His goodness to all men on the level of common grace. But there's another kind of love, and that is God's love in redemptive grace. And that transcends common grace, and that is His love for those who are His own. God's love in the common grace sense uh, simply brings certain good things into the life of people who hate Him. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The wicked do prosper. This is temporal grace, and it ends in a split second at death. 
And then there is no more love, and there is no more grace, and there is no more mercy forever in a hell of punishment. Common grace, this temporal, earthly expression of God's love, has as its purpose to lead people to the redemptive grace of God so that they can not only know His grace in this life, but they can know His grace lavishly, eternally in the life to come in the heaven of heavens. God does love. I think that's a message you have heard a lot. That is the contemporary message of the church. God loves everybody. God loves you just the way you are. We hear that a lot. God loves everybody. We don't want to make uh, people feel badly because they have certain lifestyles that, uh, that offend us or because they have certain lifestyles that uh, the Bible condemns. We don't want to make people who uh, live in fornication, sexual sin, or we don't want to make people who are um, adulterers feel bad. We don't want to make them feel like they're not welcome in the church. We, uh, we, we don't want to make um, homosexuals feel like they're being left out. We, we certainly don't want to make um, transgender people feel badly about the fact that they're transgender. We, we want to have a conference, and so in a few weeks there'll be a conference sponsored by Evangelical Movement in America, uh, welcoming all the transgender and all the homosexual people to make them feel good and welcome in the church because we want everybody to know God loves everybody and God loves everybody just the way everybody is. If that was true, you have to tell me why God drowned the entire human race as recorded in Genesis 6. The entire human race was drowned and catapulted into eternal judgment and only eight people survived. God gives His reason because He looked at the world and He looked at the people in it, and it was only evil continually. And God obliterated the planet. And it was such a massive obliteration that He broke up the canopy of water over the earth, broke up the fountains of the deep inside the earth, pushed up the mountains and the canyons so that today you find sea fossils in the Grand Canyon and the mountains of Beirut because the flood changed the face of the earth, covered it globally. If you ever question how God feels about sin, you have to go back to Genesis 6 and the flood. That's the most dramatic, collective act of God's hatred for evil. People today, even Christian people and many pastors lack the courage to say things like that. The greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, was a man named John the Baptist. I have to say he was a better Baptist than most because Jesus said He's the greatest man who ever lived. He uh, faced the ruler, Herod, and it might have been his desire to... Uh, uh, gain some access to Herod and, and maybe find a place uh, where um, he would be accepted and, and maybe elevated and then he could have influence uh, on Herod and maybe he could influence his family, maybe he could influence the sphere that Herod ruled or had dominion over. 
But John didn't do that. When John faced Herod, he condemned Herod, and he condemned Herod's wife for incest, for incest. The courage of the man is stunning. What was at stake? Do you know the rest of the story? They chopped his head off, put it on a platter, served it up at a drunken party. It cost him his head to confront the sin of a ruler, but it was the truth. He paid the price for it. By the way, the Roman Catholic Church today has in its possession part of the head of John the Baptist in a cathedral in France before which they kneel and offer sacraments, which of course is absurd. The head of John the Baptist? There's a history that traces the head. Worshiping the head of John the Baptist is bizarre paganism. Following the character of John the Baptist is Christian courage. You can't just preach the love of God. Sorry. If that's all you preach, you're not faithful. You're not honest. And you're not useful in the kingdom. God has perfect love. And because of that, He also has perfect hate. God has perfect love, and necessarily He has perfect hate. Anyone who loves hates what threatens the object of that love, right? Anyone who loves hates what threatens the object of His love. The greater your love, the greater your hatred for what assaults what you love. Listen to Psalm 97.10, hate evil, you who love the Lord. Did you know you had a license to hate? You have a license to hate. You not only have a license to hate, you have a mandate to hate. You have a command, hate evil. Psalm 119.104, the psalmist says, I love your law, therefore I hate every false way. Sometimes people say to me, why do you get so concerned about false doctrine, false teaching, sin in the church, defection in the ministry? Because I hate evil. Why? Because I love the Lord. I love His law, therefore I hate every evil way. Psalm 119 again and 113 says, I love your law. I hate those who are double-minded. I hate those who are compromisers, who vacillate, who twist and tamper with your word to accommodate their own desires. I hate them. Psalm 119, 128 says, I hate every false way. Psalm 119, 163, I hate and despise falsehood and lies. I love your law. The perfect love of God demands an equally perfect hate. 
And if I love God, I have to hate what God hates. This is the reality of the message of the gospel. You have to know there are things God hates, and what He hates will bring down His judgment. Turn back to Proverbs in the Old Testament, and we'll hear from the testimony of the Lord in chapter 6 of Proverbs. And if you're in chapter 6, down at verse 16. This is kind of a sampling when the, when, uh, the Hebrew language says there are six, yes, seven. Seven is kind of the number of completion because it was in seven days that the Lord did all of His creation. And so that becomes kind of the symbol of completing. So here is a, a kind of illustration of the things God hates in a sort of complete way. Six things which the Lord hates. What does it mean to hate them? They are an abomination to Him. They abominate Him. They infuriate Him. What are they? Pretty shocking. What are they? Haughty eyes, a proud look. Wow. What? Like, that's 90% of Facebook. A proud look? That would bring down all the social media stars on the planet. Why does God start there? Why not with something really bad? Because that's really bad. A lying tongue. God hates liars. God hates hands that shed innocent blood, people who kill. God hates a heart that devises wicked plans, schemers. God hates schemers who devise wicked plans to do damage to people. God hates feet that run rapidly to evil. God hates a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. I don't know if you thought that's what what the list was going to look like. When God sums up what He hates, He hates pride, symbolized by elevated eyes. That's the basically the fountain of all sin. That is the basic iniquity. That's why Satan fell. He said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will be equal to God. Satan fell, landed in the garden, led the whole human race to fall out of the same love of pride. God hates pride. Psalm 1827 says, haughty eyes, you abase. Psalm 101.5, no one who has haughty eyes or a proud look and an arrogant heart will I tolerate. God will not tolerate pride. Just to give you a complete picture of this, Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16. Here's an illustration. In the denunciation of the women of Judah, Isaiah 3.16, moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps, 
kind of a seductive walk, and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. The woman's glory is in her hair. In the day, the, in that day, the Lord will take away beauty of their anklets, their headbands, their crescent ornaments, their dangling earrings, their bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. It'll come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction, instead of a belt, a rope, instead of a well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp, instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword, and your mighty ones in battle, and her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground." Yikes! Post that in the beauty spa. God hates a proud heart. God hates lying. God hates cruelty. God hates the pursuit of sin. God hates divisiveness. God hates perjury, false testimony. God hates scheming. Malachi 2.16 says, God hates divorce. Jeremiah 44, 3 and 4, God hates idolatry, worshiping anything other than Him. Amos 5.21, God hates hypocrisy. Coming down here, I sat next to a lady on the little plane we were flying. She struck up a conversation, just a young gal, about 32, I think. She saw that I was working on a book, and she said, are you, you working on a book? And I said, I am working on a book, uh, writing a book on Scripture. She said, do you write books? I said, do, I do write books. Um, she said, well, what kind of books do you write? I said, I, I write books about the Bible. She said, oh, uh, my husband grew up in a pastor's house. My husband's entire family uh, are part of the Christian church, and they're all, they're all in ministry. She said, uh, but my husband and I, we have nothing to do with it. I said, really? You have nothing to do with it? She said, I'm Jewish, but I don't practice Judaism, but we have nothing to do with that. I said, well, how is it that with all that influence on your husband's life, he rejected all of that? She said, his father, the pastor, was a complete hypocrite. God hates hypocrisy. The damage is just unbearable. We had a good conversation. I, I wanted to tell her that not all people in the ministry are hypocrites, although her whole family has found its way into the worst parts of the charismatic movement, the phony healers, and more of them are going into the ministry all the time because they make money so fast. People who are desperate. Who want healing, deliverance, health, prosperity, and wealth will give up their money to the people who promised them that. The whole thing is so onerous to her that she and her husband have denounced it. God hates hypocrisy. 
you didn't see a lot of extreme things like mass murder, because God hates all sin. And God starts with the most common ones. But there's something else God hates, and that's what we want to talk about. God hates something else. Go back to 1 John, and we're going to land there for a little while. Chapter 2, and let me read to you verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world. It could even be translated, stop loving the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Here is a love God hates. Did you hear that? Here is a love God hates. He hates the love of the world. God hates it when people love the world. Now, what do we mean by the world? What are we talking about here? We're not talking about the world in every sense. World is the, is the word cosmos in Greek. Cosmos has basically an antonym, and the antonym of cosmos is chaos, okay? You all know what chaos is, right? Disorder. Cosmos is simply the Greek word for order, structure. So when we look at the universe in which we live, we see structure many, many places. We see order in many, many places. We see systems in many, many places. God is not the author of chaos. It's, it's beyond comprehension how ordered the mind of God is. The Hubble telescope just recently, the people who run the, the Hubble telescope, which is a telescope in orbit that can see deeper into endless space than anything ever in history. The scientists have just announced in the last couple of weeks, listen to this, there are as many stars at least as there are grains of sand on the earth. That is beyond comprehension. God is infinitely incomprehensible who made all of that, and every bit of it operates in systems. Your body operates in systems. God has built into the universe systems. The reason you can fly in an airplane is because what keeps an airplane in the air doesn't change. Gravity doesn't change. Centripetal, centrifugal force doesn't change. Molecular structure doesn't change. Adam keeps, atoms keep doing what they're doing. He upholds all things by the word of His power. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos and not a God of confusion. So when we look at the system of the universe and the system of the world, 
That's not sinful. We say, you've been singing it even this morning. Praise God, the Creator, right? Give glory to God. The heavens, Psalm 19, the heavens declare what? The glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Night into night offers speech and day into day language and goes on to talk about how the sun has an orbit that goes from one end of heaven to the other and it drags our entire solar system with it and there are innumerable suns and there are so many galaxies that they don't even have enough numbers for them. And we give glory to the Creator. And you're a fool if you attribute that to evolution. In fact, you're more than a fool, you're insane to say that all of that came from nobody and nothing. So we are to love the Creator and to love the beauty and the wonder of His creation. I've been reading a book called Precision. I read a lot of books because I'm fascinated by a lot of things. This is the history of precision. You take precision for granted. Look at my watch. That's precision. Two hundred years ago, they couldn't even make one of these because they didn't even know what precision was and they didn't have any ability to create things that small that could operate with that kind of precision. When they first built a steam engine in the United States in the 1700s, it blew steam all over everywhere. Water came flying out of it. It was a horrific mess because they couldn't create a precise cylinder. They were still constructing cylinders out of pieces and then trying to get something like a piston to go in a cylinder that was not precise and it just blew stuff everywhere. Not until somebody figured out how to create a drill that could drill through a steel rod perfectly precise hole and then create something it could perfectly fit into that did they begin to discover precision. And then the next amazing challenge was to make something absolutely flat, absolutely perfectly flat, zero degrees flat. For the history of the human race, they've been beating things flat with a hammer or a rock. Now precision has taken over our world and we're beginning to see what an incredibly precise mind God has. Everything He does is precise. You know, you know why the Lord rested on the seventh day? He had finished creation. You know why He ordained the seventh day, Saturday, to rest so that you had a day to be amazed at His creation, so that you all had a day through all of human history, to be amazed at His creation. The New Testament, the first day, becomes the day the church celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even as Christians, we still should celebrate on the seventh day, for us Saturday, the creation and the great Creator. So I'm not talking about the physical world. You're not to hate the physical world. It's a wonder. You're not even to hate the human world. You better learn to love people, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. God loves the world. You, you need to love the world. You, you need to show that love. We're to love people. We're to love believers, love unbelievers. I have to tell you this as a pastor, 50 years in the same church now, 
every single problem we've ever had in our church through all these years is because people don't love the way they're supposed to. All of them. Every single problem I've ever seen is because people don't love. Love is the bond of peace, right? Love is the bond of peace in any relationship. Marriages break up because people don't love. Families break up because people don't love. And I mean love with all the depth and richness that con- that's contained in a real love. We are to love people. So when I talk about God saying, I hate a certain kind of love, it's not loving the wonder of His creation. It's not loving even the people that He created. What are we talking about? We're talking about a different system, not the human system as such and, and not the material world as such, but the system of evil that dominates the world and is opposed to God and Christ. That's the world that we're not to love. Now, we understand the world, the term world used that way, world of sports, world of dance, the world of Harry Potter, whatever, the world of pie, the world of this, the world of that. That's just a system. We talk about the world of education, the world of politics. Those are simply systems. So when we're not to love, the direct focus of not loving is on this world in the sense that it is a system of evil. It is a system of evil. Now for just a minute, go back to John uh, chapter 7, or you can listen, I'll read it to you. The words of our Lord in this part of the gospel of John are really pertinent. John 7, 7. The world hates Me, Jesus said, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The world hates Me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. So the world that hates Him is the world of evil. The world of evil hated Him. Over in chapter 8, verse 42. If God were your Father, you would love Me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on My own initiative, but He sent Me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear My word. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe Me. This is the world. It hates the truth. It hates the one who speaks the truth. It hates Christ, and it hates those who are Christ's. In the fifteenth chapter of John, two more verses, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. He just says world, 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 half a dozen times in two verses. What world is he talking about? The world that hates him and the world that he hates. The world of evil. The world that doesn't know the truth, doesn't believe the truth, that rejects God, that rejects Christ, that rejects the Bible system of ideas and purposes 
and theories and philosophies and activities, behaviors and sins and iniquities, transgressions, malfeasance that is opposed to God. Described in 2 Corinthians 10, everything lifted up against the knowledge of God. Any ungodly idea, any ungodly system of thought, any ungodly behavior, any ungodly complex of behaviors, that constitutes the world that God hates and the world that hates God and the world, listen, that we cannot love. And now we're back to 1 John, do not love that world. Love God's wondrous creation, love God's creation of people, do not love the complex of sins, transgressions, iniquity and corruption that is itself a world under the control of the God of this world, Satan, and the demons who belong to Him. Now I'm going to give you a couple of things to tie this down. We hate the world, number one. We don't love the world. We hate the world because of what it is. We hate the world because of what it is. It is the enemy of God. We've just read that. It is the enemy of Christ. It hates God. It hates Christ. It hates the truth. I just read you that in John 8. Because I speak the truth, you don't believe me because you can't receive the truth. 1 Corinthians 2, the truth is foolishness to you. You can't receive the truth. We hate the world because the world is the enemy of God, the enemy of Christ, the enemy of truth, the enemy of the gospel, the enemy of salvation, the enemy of believers. It is your enemy. Satan is the prince of this world. Evil spirits operate in this world. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, but principalities and powers, rulers of darkness in high places. And people become agents of that satanic system. All unsaved people are caught up in this complex, this world system, so that Luke 16, 8, Jesus calls them children of the world, children of the world. All of us have been rescued out of the world. That's what it means to be a believer. We have been taken out of this world. We have been delivered from this world. The world can't relate to us. We're the children of God. They're the children of the world. We're the children of heaven. They're liars. We're truth-tellers. Their world is run by Satan, ours by God. They're antichrist. We are Christ-like. John 17, 6, in Jesus' prayer, He prayed to the Father and He said, He was grateful that we had all been chosen out of this world. We're not a part of this world. We don't belong to this world. So look at John 3, 13, 1 John 3, 13. Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. 
Why? Because we have passed out of death into life, and we are marked by love. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. You're not part of it. Go over to chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children. Ye have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world, Satan. They are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God doesn't listen to us. By this we know the, the difference between the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. The Spirit of truth is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of error is demonic. Chapter 5, he says, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. We've overcome the world. We've triumphed over the world. Through faith we have gained the victory that overcomes the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? Verse 5, whoever believes in Jesus as the Son of God. We don't love the world. We don't love the world. And we don't love the world because of what it is. It is the enemy of God. It's hateful to God, to Christ, to Christians, to the church, to the truth, to the gospel. It is dominated by hostility, hostility to the Son of God, hostility to righteousness, hostility to virtue. It is driven by fleshly ambition, pride, greed, deception, lies, corruption, self-pleasure, evil desire. Its influences are demoralizing. Its ideas are corrupt. Its honors are empty. Its affections are fake, and its love is fickle. The whole system is set in rebellion against the one we love. We don't love the world because of what it is. Secondly, we don't love the world because of who we are. We don't love the world because of who we are. We're not part of that. We have a different father. Their father is the devil, John 8:44. Our Father is God. We are in the loving family of God. Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Turn that around. If the love of the Father is in him, he doesn't love the world. We don't love the world because we love the Father, and the world hates the Father. It's inconsistent with our nature. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12. Our sins have been forgiven. We are now children of God. Go down to the end of verse 14. Verse 13 at the end says, we know the Father. Verse 14 says, we're strong. The Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is who we are. We're in God's family now. Ask yourself this, do you love any people more than fellow believers? Do you love any fellowship more than the fellowship of Christians? Do you love any activity more than worshiping? Do you love any effort more than service to the Lord? Do you love any reward more than God's well done? If you do, 
you're not being faithful to your family. We don't love the world because of what it is, because of who we are. Thirdly, we don't love the world because of what it does, what it does. It's not just out there. You're not looking through a glass at it. It's not something far away. No. What does it do? Verse 16, all that is in the world, all of it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. All that is in the world is not of the Father. They are mutually exclusive, our world in the family of God and the world of Satan and sin are mutually exclusive worlds. All the world does is this. It provides gateways to draw you into sin. Here are the three gateways, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. What the world wants to do is suck you in. It wants to suck you in, and it does it with these three mechanisms. The lust of the flesh, what is that sinful desire? And you know what that is because your heart is drawn to that because there's still residual sin in your life even though you belong to God. You know there's a battle in your heart. The lust of the flesh are all those longings for um, fame and fortune, sexual fulfillment on a short-term temporal destructive basis, anger, hostility, bitterness, a desire to ruin somebody, hurt somebody, gossip about somebody, tear somebody down, build yourself up, all the garbage of sin that's still in us until we're taken to heaven is that complex of evil desires, the world seduces us on that pathway, the lust of the flesh. Paul says in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this flesh? He described himself as a Christian like somebody, what they used to do in ancient days, if you killed somebody, one of the punishments was to take the dead corpse and strap it to your back. That was the punishment, and eventually the decaying of that corpse would eat into the living person and he would die a slow death from the corruption of the body he killed, corrupting and killing his own body. Paul looks at himself as a Christian and says, I feel like I've got a dead body strapped to my back and its corruption is eating into me. So I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that is in me, who will deliver me from the body of this death tied to me? We all understand that even Paul, as noble as he was, the lust of the flesh is a reality. You say, how do you make sure you don't follow the path of the lust of the flesh? Stay away from whatever seduces it, right? It can be, it can be horrific to try to battle that. And that's why you have to remember that David said, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin. Your thinking has to be controlled by the Word of God. Second is the lust of the eyes. Your eyes, your eyes have an appetite. That's right. Your eyes have an appetite. You know it when you look at your cell phone. You know it when you look at a computer, iPad, when you go to a movie, when you watch television. Your eyes are an entry point 
for the world to seduce you into sin. Some of it comes from deep down inside in your natural desires. Others of it comes right through your eyes. That's why Job said in Job 31, I made a covenant with my eyes. I made a covenant with my eyes. And then there's the boastful pride of life, alaxaneia, the braggart, pretentious egotism, self-promotion, self-exaltation. There's something in you that wants to push you up. There's something in you that wants to elevate you, to make you into somebody. Never has there been in human history a mechanism to do that as effectively as social media, because you can make yourself into whatever you want to be, which is normally unrelated to anything close to who you really are. So sensuality, sensuality, covetousness that comes through the eyes, and egotism. The world panders to those mechanisms and wants to suck you into sin. That's exactly what Satan did with Eve, exactly those three temptations. It's exactly the three temptations he used with Christ in his temptation. Matthew 4, Luke 4, that's the way He always operates. Guard your desires, guard your eyes, and guard your pride. So we do not love the world because of what it is, because of who we are, because of what it does. And one final point, we don't love the world because of where it's going. Verse 17, the world is passing away. You don't want to get on that ship, it's going to sink. You don't want to get on that airplane, it's going to crash and burn. You don't want to get on that train, it's going off a cliff. The world is passing away and also its lusts. Present tense, the world, the system is already doomed and the people in the system are already damned. It is in present self-destruction. People say, boy, things in the world are getting worse. Yeah, absolutely. Evil men will grow worse and worse. The Bible says it. It is in the self-destruct mode. The death principle is already operating. It carries the forces of its own disintegration and its own destruction constantly, constantly. It is passing away. You don't want to be on that plane. But final word, in contrast to all of that, the one who does the will of God, what? Lives forever. Loving God, doing God's will, that's the path to eternal life. Father, we thank You for our time this morning, for what it has already been accomplished in our hearts through Your Word and Your Holy Spirit. We thank You as well for bringing us together. Like Esther, we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, and You have work to do in our hearts, and we desire that You would do it to Your glory in every heart here. And we'll thank You for that, for Your honor, in Christ's name, amen.